Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today on the show, we have historians Jeannie and David Heidler, who have co-authored several books and articles dealing with the history of the early American Republic and the Civil War. They are the authors of the acclaimed biography Henry Clay, The Essential American. David taught for many years at university level, and Jeannie is now the Emerita Professor of History at the United States Air Force Academy. David, Jeannie, welcome to History 605. Well, thank you for having us. Thank you so much, Ben. Today we'll be discussing your book, George Washington's Circle, The Creation of the President, uh, published by Random House in 2015. The book makes or describes the foundations put in place by Washington and his close advisors that fostered the creation of a lasting republic, despite the odds. Uh, while this may seem an odd topic for a podcast on South Dakota or the region, we're doing this in the run-up to America's 250th birthday in July of 2026. And certainly Washington's words and actions are relevant for the people of our state. So, Jeannie, David, I'm wondering if you can uh, share with us why the title? What What's Washington's circle mean? What we try to do is take uh, all of the people around Washington, not just his official family, uh, like the cabinet, for instance, and other government officials, but everyone who had an influence on Washington before, but mainly during his presidency. So his circle Mm. is small with regard to his family, uh, but of course expands out to his official family and even a lot of friends uh, around the country who had a great impact on the presidency. Okay. The book does a lot to kind of reveal a lot about Washington's character, and I love your opening paragraph where you write, history, after all, is littered with the debris of ambition, which really sets the scene in a time when Americans distrusted government and saw Washington's conduct as somebody who could be trusted with political power. How, How does the book kind of frame those friendships and those relationships that Washington had with uh, so many of the founders um, and those relationships that it seems like he's constantly marshalling his own forces, his own discipline against his own ambitions while keeping other titanic ambitions in check, like Hamilton and Jefferson and so forth. Can you comment a little bit about that? The skill he has in doing that is really unique. Um, how does he kind of maintain the discipline to continue to do it despite being around such titanic ambitions? Well, Washington uh, 
is is the exemplar of the probably the first qualification that should be assessed and and seen in someone aspiring to the chief executive's position, which is he didn't want it. The entire uh, first part of the the book in the in the uh, uh, formation of Washington's character in terms of where he stood at the end of the revolution and then moving into the turbulence of the Confederation period is that he had to be persuaded. And I think it's very sincerely so had to be persuaded to take on this burden because everything he was going to do was going to be a precedent. He was going to have to set all of the forms and protocols and processes of the new government. And one misstep uh, and an indelible uh, ink on a on a blank page, one smeared place could undo the entire experiment. And as a result of that, he was extremely cautious about taking the burden and then once assuming it, as was his in his character, that when he was slow to a decision, but once made, he was impervious to all distractions from it. This was the story mm-hmm. of the revolution where, you know, almost everyone at some point or other uh, said that this was not going to work and we needed to, to make a, an adjustment or even consider uh, reconciliation with the British, and he never did. In the mm-hmm. presidency, he was much the same way. This was going to have to work, and he sacrificed a good deal of himself. Uh, he even bent some rigid principles in order to make sure that, that that it did work. And when the day came for him to lay down the power, he did so gracefully in much the same way that he did at the end of the revolution, in which he just went home. And he went home in 1797, and his result confirmed, validated the trust the people had in him. I can't think of a of, of a more uh, sterling example of a of someone checking their ambition and sacrificing the, themselves for the for the better good. I assume you've seen the music musical Hamilton. Well, uh, Washington is uh, comes across in Hamilton just in that fashion that you said. I mean, he he's resolute. Once they make a decision, his resolution is solid in that uh, portrayed in that show. He, and he's he comes out of that show looking like the nation's kind of even keel during all the storms. He's the guy who kind of sets the tone and uh, so forth among these ambitious men. You mentioned the early story, the fable of him not chopping down the cherry tree and so forth. What was the utility of that childhood story that we're all told, uh, even though it it's a fiction, but there's a, there's a kind of a core of truth to it, no pun intended, about telling the truth, right? <laughs> if you could uh, take a story, maybe no pun intended, cherry pick a story about, the, about his life that's true, what would be an example of that that would talk about his discipline about putting down power and walking away? I don't think he ever really wanted power. Uh, hmm. He wanted the control of the army. He didn't like people interfering uh, during the revolution uh, with what he was trying to accomplish. But I don't think power was something that he really aspired to. And as David said, I think the the fact that he did resign his commission without having to be asked to, that he did lay down the presidency when many people would have much preferred that he 
have a third term. Those are examples of someone who didn't really seek power, but he came to believe that he was the only one, and he was probably correct, uh, the only one who could make the Constitution work. Uh, Obviously, other people made it work later, but this was brand new. And uh, I think the fact that he did know in his heart that he was the only person that the people completely trusted. And that goes back to the Weems story with the the cherry tree, that what Weems was trying to do was to show that this from the beginning, practically from the womb, that this was a very trustworthy person. Um, so those are, are two examples that David already mentioned, but you may have something else. Well, you know, there's an anecdote, and it might be apocryphal. There's some doubt as to its uh, its truth, uh, that John Trumbull, uh, in discussion with George III, uh, George III asked Trumbull, the American artist, uh, what will he do now? And this was at the end of the presidency, and Trumbull said he will go home. George III purportedly said... If he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. Nuff said. Well, that that comes out in the Hamilton musical too. As a, they have the George the Third character say, "I didn't know a man could do that." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think George the Third might uh, envied him. Uh, return, yeah, retreat, yeah, harm, gross stuff. <laughs> Clearly, his soldiers in the army uh, loved him and they respected him. Uh, certainly, he he suffered a lot of deserters. And so forth, but the ones who stuck to him uh, proved to be sufficient for the task at hand with winning the war against the British. What drove such devotion? There was a magisterial uh, dignity that Washington brought to the job, a sense of uh, supreme self that was unshakable under the under the most uh, trying and uh, tumultuous circumstances. Washington was a rock. His temper was quite legendary, and he would mm-hmm. occasionally lose it. But for the most part, he was exceptionally calm, uh, deliberate, and uh, when the occasion required it, daring. The entire persona that he exemplified as a as an unshakable, solid leader mm-hmm. was something that made men made men want to die for him. The Newburgh conspiracy that almost overthrew the government, there's some doubt as to its real significance and importance, but it was obviously something afoot. And Washington mm-hmm. was able to quell that uh, by appealing to the better natures of the officer corps, which had been quite riled up over the several uh, significant slights that, uh, that, that riled them up justifiably. But Washington was able to quell this, not by presenting them with any persuasive argument, but by just being Washington. The, the mm. famous statement where he puts the, the uh, spectacles on, you know, to read the letter from the congressman about how this is all going to be addressed. And everyone uh, in the officer corps is, is shocked because Washington had been a young man. He was in his early 40s when this all started. And they suddenly realized how old he looked. And he said, forgive me, gentlemen, but I have nearly gone blind in the service of my country. And that did it. Do you think that was a calculated statement or, or sincere? I mean, is there, 
a lot of this appears to be a masterful or could be taken to be a masterful but yet cynical ploy, right? I've I read that about Well, Washington a lot of people Metro. think it was. Yeah, that Hamilton yeah. engineered this to get a stronger central government was the whole point. Something had to be okay. done about the feckless Congress. But the, yeah. the Washington, I think, was truly embarrassed by having to put on the spectacles because there was a streak of vanity in him. Uh, about his personal appearance, hence, hence okay. the dress, the, the fastidious nature of his uh, grooming, everything, every hair in place, every button buttoned, uh, and to put on those spectacles and show us something. So surrender to the vicissitudes of age, I mm-hmm. think, uh, made him a uh, made him genuinely abashed, and he mm-hmm. that's why he said, "With the soldiers in the in his army and." the 1770s and 1780s know of his exploits as a young man in in, uh, the French and Indian War? They knew that he had been there. Uh, They knew that people probably did know that he had, I won't say started the whole thing, but he sort of did start the whole thing. (laughs) Started the World War. Yeah, Yeah, Uh, he started the World War. He had surrendered, but at the same time, they also knew about the stories of his bravery during the Braddock campaign. Mm-hmm. Even though that mm-hmm. was a disaster, he came out of that looking magnificent because of his ability to rally the men, to lead them on the retreat so that most of them did survive. So they knew mm-hmm. about that. They didn't know probably all of the stuff that he did on the frontier after the Braddock fiasco because it was militia activity. He never sure. did receive the regular uh, commission that he had sought so strongly. Uh, so they probably did not know about really the, the sacrifices he made in trying to keep the militia organized after 55, mm-hmm. 1755. Yeah, this is one of the ironies when you think about it. Governor Dinwiddie really did labor to get Washington a regular commission in the British Army, and they just wouldn't have it because he was a colonial and obviously not as... Uh, Connected. Connect, well, not well, connected and also as, as capable. Yes. Uh, capable or connected as the regular mm-hmm. British Army soldier officers were, so they were quite jealous. So Dinwiddie failed in that. But when he went home and was in Britain in years of his retirement, he was an exceptionally rigid Tory who was insistent upon disciplining the Americans as they grew more and more restive. And uh, in a way, Dinwiddie finally succeeded. He got George Washington the commission. Did that slight animate his whole career? I mean, was was that insult something that drove him to into supporting the revolution? Do you think that that was? I don't think so because he was he was I won't say slow to come around, but he was cautious. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think he ever intended to be in the military in any way mm. after. Uh, the Seven Years French and Indian War. Okay. So I don't know, but he he did come around, but it was because of the same reasons other people did. He wasn't right. a firebrand by any means. Right. I think he was very resentful of the British for the way they behaved during the war. That they were so cavalier about the, uh, the colonial sensibilities. And mm-hmm. it, that changed his attitude. He was a servant of the crown. But after mm-hmm. the after these slights and after the mishandling of everything that happened during the war, uh, changed him, 
and he's never quite as loyal a subject. He's mm-hmm. not a revolutionary, but he's not as he's not as fond of the idea of the British colonial system as he had been uh, yeah. when he was growing up. I think that's true of a lot of people yes. during that time. That that the British behavior during that war did I won't say alienate a lot of people, but it 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 certainly made them rethink their position as British subjects. Yeah, the astute observation in Parliament, great empires and little minds go ill together. And uh, (laughs) policy had a good deal to do Mm -hmm. with this rather than personal affronts. Yeah, sure. I think one of the one of the chapters that really stuck out to me in your book was the one entitled A Certain Species of Property, the chapter about Washington's uh, views and entanglements about slavery and being a slave master as he was himself. And you write at one point in kind of the lead up to this about Madison, that Madison was not a racist, but a racialist. What does that mean that Madison could never kind of see beyond the, as you say, Madison could never see beyond the coffle shackles and skin to imagine that African-Americans could be uh, as equal to and talents and capacities as everyone else. I think you do a good job of, of placing them in their context. And so um, what does it mean to be a racialist? Well, you know, Leonard Levy had a, an interesting uh, remark about this. Um, he said that uh, when his book on Jefferson and civil liberties, uh, and it, he said that um, there's little profit in blaming someone for being born in the 18th century. Hmm. And so these people were products of their time. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were as uh, shaped and molded by their time as they were by their personal experiences. And this is normal. I mean, this happens to, to human beings wherever they may be or whatever they may believe. And in terms of Madison, it's very strange. As we point out, I believe, in the book, he had empirical evidence. I mean, his personal experiences uh, demonstrated to him the very thing that you say, that there were people who were black who were capable of rising above the station of slavery and and working within a system uh, that was in many ways prejudiced against them, but succeed in it by their own perspicacity and resolve, determination. Mm-hmm. And yet that didn't really do anything to change his attitude about the, the institution. It's very odd. To answer your question, I don't think that Madison saw slaves and even free black people who he encountered when he was many times in the North, went to school in the North, that he saw them as being less than human, Uh, as even necessarily being inferior. But this was a subject that in the case of Madison, it it made all of them uncomfortable, as we do point out. Uh, Washington was uncomfortable. Jefferson was uncomfortable. uh, And Madison was. But Madison, more than the other two, was extremely successful, to use a modern term, term of compartmentalizing his attitudes on slavery uh, and black people. And I don't know why that is. I don't think there's an absolute explanation for why that was, except that I would perhaps put forth, and this is just 
pure speculation. Of the three, he was the wealthiest. He was perhaps the most dependent on slave labor. He was very comfortable in his wealth. And I think that he could not envision a life without slaves. Whereas the other two tried to think about ways that they could, and Washington probably especially, because slavery was not profitable for Washington, particularly by the time, by the 1780s and 1790s. And I would, again, speculate that perhaps that had something to do with Madison just taking that and putting it in the back of his mind that he could do kind things for individual slaves, but slaves as a whole, he, he really had no desire to change things. He didn't, he, he alone, uh, among, uh, among the founders was, uh, indifferent to the fate of these people after he had died. You know, there Mm -hmm. is no, he makes no provision in his will to emancipate anyone. It is, as, as Janie says, I think it's strange that he, com- it's almost like a scholarly attitude of uh, of complete, profound indifference to those things about which he could do nothing. You know, he, mm-hmm. he couldn't do anything about it, so right. that's not to think right. about it. Well, he's, he's certainly, it, it, uh, your description of uh, the last few months or weeks of Benjamin Franklin's life and the, the push to eradicate slavery at the in the first Congress and uh, you write Franklin goes to bed to, to die thinking he's in his last days, but he hears the response from the Quaker push and he goes back to, to take part in the debates uh, one final few days and so forth. But the blowback from that is almost, well, counterproductive, I guess, for the short term ending of slavery and what they thought it would be. They didn't, they all think that, well, and you make the point, Washington loathed slavery because it was immoral to hold men in bondage and hypocritical to talk about liberty while doing so. But he also found slavery offensive because he gradually realized it was bankrupting him. What's the situation that Washington find himself in, even though alerted by Franklin and others that there's there's a morality, deep, profound morality issue here? Washington knows uh, in his own sense that it's bankrupting him. And so does that inform his understanding that someday everyone else will realize it's, it's bankrupting them. And so there'll be economic incentive to end it. Is that what he's thinking? I don't, I don't think so. I think his, his thoughts about slavery began to come together during the revolution. And that's really before it was becoming an economic problem for him. Okay. That the principles behind the revolution that he started thinking about those uh, in more detail than he had before. As we point out, he he grew up with slavery. He owned slaves his whole life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he hadn't really given it a lot of thought until the talk of the principles behind the revolution, I think, made him start thinking about it. And then after the revolution, when growing tobacco was just not going to make his fortune or even allow him to to keep going agriculturally, then I think those two things come together. The the mm-hmm. idea that slavery is wrong and it's not so good for me. 
because yeah. of the sheer numbers of slaves that he had, uh, that he had to feed and clothe and house, but didn't have enough for them to do. And I think those two things then come together. Yeah, he became committed to uh, to keeping families together, even at financial costs. Uh, the, the, and and he he switched Mount Vernon to a produ- uh, produce wheat farm economy. He had far too many people who didn't have anything to do. They they really wow. the, these this crop these crops were not as labor intensive as tobacco or mm-hmm. cotton would have been. And uh, and as a result, they he Jeannie he, and I were talking about this the other day that this is really behind his effort to diversify Mount Vernon into a mm-hmm. into a into a sort of little industry of you know subsidiary. Uh, manufacturing things of whiskey, of okay. uh, the fisheries uh, that he the grist mill the grist mill he, he these were all commercial exactly. enterprises. Yeah. He sold all of these things, and that that started giving other people skilled people who could learn how to do the distilling and mm-hmm. learn how to operate the mills and the fisheries. Uh, that also gave people things to do. So those are I mean all of this. I mean, you go to Mount Vernon today, and they have reconstructed all of these things uh, and sell the whiskey. I mean, you can go That's and right. buy whiskey there. Uh, that and that was a product that always had a market <laughs> and still does. Still does, yes. He conducted two, two census, uh, uh, a census in in, uh, in the eighties, and then a census some thirteen years later. And his, he knew in the first one that this wasn't working. And then the one 13 years later, it had, it had just become a nightmare. I think we, we talk about his plan uh, to uh, turn Mount Vernon into, uh, into, uh, into a tenant farm arrangement uh, where the farms uh, are independently run and he would keep the mansion house and the main farm. But they would, uh, they would essentially be run by British agricultural labor rather than, uh, you know, imported people mm-hmm. from Ireland and, and Scotland and and, oh, and, and the England to do this and that this would allow him to emancipate a large numbers of people that he could. And, and I don't know, right. if, you know, the dower slave business is very complicated, but this right. was also on his, his uh, humanitarian impulses, the legal mm-hmm. check that he couldn't do anything about. I, I found that really interesting. His his uh, explain the legal situation he finds himself in with the dower slaves. What is a dowry slave? Uh, how did that work? And what's what are the constraints that he faces with this kind of system? Well, Martha was his the source of wealth. She was a Dandridge by birth, but married into the Custis family. It was fabulously wealthy. And uh, as a result, when she married him, married Washington, uh, her husband, first husband had died some years before she uh, she married him. She brought with her the Custis estate, which had within it a group of uh, slaves known as the Dower slaves that really didn't belong to her. And they certainly didn't belong to Washington. She was holding them in trust. And okay. upon her death, they were to be distributed among the heirs of the Custis family. So you should probably okay. mention that she came to the marriage with two children. Yes. And their heirs, those children and her 
those heirs were to inherit those slaves and all okay. uh, tremendous amounts of land yes. as well. And her daughter died before marriage, so she didn't have any children, but her son, Jackie, he married and had, I think, four children, oh, yeah. four children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so those four children were to inherit those slaves, okay. not to mention all of the property that she brought. Mount Vernon belonged to Washington, but she owned property all over the place. Yeah, along I mean, the Pamunkey and all, yeah. you know, all over and the Williamsburg, Potomac. Williamsburg yeah. too. Yeah, and the mm-hmm. and this was just part of the property inventory. Washington could not free these people unless yeah. he paid for them, unless he replaced them. And they were the issue. Then became not only that, but that they intermarried with the slaves that he owned outright, and the children born to those unions were dower slaves. If from if the mother was yeah, a if the dower. dower, if the mother was a dower, a slave, those were dower wow. slaves. The census that he did in the in the nineties. It was it was a nightmare, as I say, <laughs> economically, but also straightening out these these genealogical tables to determine who owned who, and uh, as a result, he could not free. I would say that at least half, about and, half, yeah. the the, uh, the number of slaves on Mount Vernon were not his, and not really hers. No, not hers. She w- had life control of them, and then they were to be divided they were, between her descendants. They were in legal right. limbo in that regard, yeah. in terms right. of their status. Right. She couldn't free them, even if she had right. wanted to. You mentioned if Washington is fiscally or financially liable for them, if they run off, he's got to reimburse the trust, essentially. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, And the, you go into some detail with um, Oni Judge. I found this woman to be fascinating, and um, really cheering for her, obviously. Yeah. Um, and uh, what courage. So mm-hmm. who is Oni and uh, what becomes of, of her and and what becomes of Washington and how that informs its thinking of slavery? She went by two names. Oni, when she was with the Washingtons, is what they called her. Uh, Judge, the surname Judge, came uh, from the man her mother claimed was her father, Okay. Uh, who was a, a white man. He was an indentured servant, I believe. Yeah. Um, so she was called Oni Judge when she was with them. Uh, when she did run away while the Washingtons were in <clears throat> Philadelphia, while his, he was president, uh, later in life, she took the legal name Ona, O-N-A, Judge, and then married. Uh, but she was a young woman, very young when she ran away, I think in her late teens. Yes. When yeah. she when she ran away, uh, they don't have her exact birth date, so it's not entirely mm-hmm. clear how old she was. Uh, and she got on a ship and went to New England. Uh, she left because, according to later conversations with her that some abolitionist had with her. She left because Martha had made it clear that she was going to give her even though she was a dower slave, to one of her granddaughters as a wedding present, which she could do because they were going to be divided among her grandchildren anyway when Martha died. And so she could give her, she couldn't really give her title until after Martha's death, and then that would be straightened out. But she was going to give her to this woman when she married, and Ona didn't like that woman. She was known as being rather difficult 
with slaves. And Oni had been treated very well with the Washingtons. She was, was Elizabeth, wasn't it? I think it was yeah, Elizabeth, yeah. the granddaughter of Elizabeth. She had been treated very well. I mean, not exactly as one of the family, uh, but she had been a playmate to one of the other granddaughters, Nellie Custis. Uh, and so as a result, she knew that her status was going to change. She was not going to be treated as a rather a pet. She yeah. really was treated sort of as a pet. Martha was very fond of her. Uh, she sewed with Martha, which was Martha's favorite pastime. Uh, and again, she had been a playmate and, and really a friend of Nellie's. And so the fact that she was now going to be probably treated as a slave, which she had not really been treated no. as most slaves were treated. And so she left. And uh, then the Washingtons made a very strong effort to try to catch her once they found out where she had gone, which mm -hmm. is a complicated story, but she was recognized by one of mm -hmm. Nellie's girlhood friends in New England. And so mm -hmm. that's apparently how they found out where mm -hmm. she was. It's a rather ugly chapter because they did make such a strong effort. And apparently at one point, we're even going to try to kidnap her after she was married mm -hmm. and had her first child. They were going to try and kidnap her, which to them, that child was also a slave, a dower slave. And mm. they ultimately gave up, partly because of the publicity. It would just yeah. be very ugly publicity yeah. to take this woman and force her back into slavery. Washington so was obviously acting from a financial, you know, the, the, the necessity of, of addressing this from a financial standpoint uh, in Martha's defense, we can, you know, Martha never really thought that Oni had run away. She thought she'd been kidnapped. She couldn't understand oh. why because she had been treated so well and, and was very fond of her. I mean, they were as close as like mother-daughter type of situation. And it was a sense of betrayal that Oni could not have betrayed her. So she had to have been abducted. And as a result, uh, Martha was for liberating her. <laughs> from her abductors. <laughs> it, it's very it's very strange. Martha was a, a lovely person, but she had some limitations in terms of her experiences and outlook and she was yeah. uh she wasn't stupid, but she wasn't really she wasn't curious about She was sheltered. Yes. And so yeah, her world yeah. was one in which the sewing circle and everybody was kind to one another and why would anyone leave? Why would anyone want to leave that? So right, right. that is, at least is a little bit of a mollification of her attitude, mm -hmm. I think. It, it seems that Oni's uh, liberation is somewhat, as you as you talked about, Jeannie, the, the publicity while he's serving as president would have just been uh, too much to take, particularly when he's trying to set the example, right? I mean, the, if you, mm -hmm. if everything you, if you realize everything you do is going to lay down the foundations for how a president is supposed to act, you won't go kidnapping your former slaves or enslaved people to, and causing a big scene and ruckus and so forth. So, and, yeah, in some so ways, you look at it in both from both directions. One of the reasons why Washington did not free some of his the ones he owned mm -hmm. while he was president because he knew that that would anger a certain part of the country, mm -hmm. the South. 
at, but the reason why he gave up on capturing Oni is that that would have alienated another part of the country, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. New England, but the North mm-hmm. in general, but New England. And so he he had to walk a very fine line on the issue of slavery. And I think we mentioned that Hercules is a is a contra indication of all of this that he owned Hercules, who was his chef and a quite talented one. Uh, mm-hmm. And Hercules ran away. He he left Mount Vernon. He actually ran away uh, as a result of being uh, placed at labor below his station, which he was mm-hmm. the chef. He was not just a cook. He was a chef in Philadelphia who prepared state dinners and shopped okay. for things. You know, he, yeah. he ran away. Washington essentially let him go. He he never really made any effort okay. to uh, to reclaim Hercules. Okay, but he could do that. It wasn't going to cost him. Yes, Hercules' yeah. value to the estate. He probably and, uh, even understood why he did. It. Oh, I think he did very well. His his. Uh, his overseer had had him hoeing weeds <laughs> and oh. Hercules said enough of that and left yeah. and went to Europe and cooked oh, in royal okay. houses. Well, another one of his, uh, the enslaved, uh, people is, is essentially a soldier served with him, uh, nearly at the hip, uh, during the war, William Lee. He suffers a riding accident after the war. I guess they're hunting foxes or something, breaks his knees and he's, he's really suffering and handicapped for the rest of his life. But Washington makes sure he, it gives him a life pension, takes care of him in that way. So, but, but yet they do seem to have a kind of a cold uh, relationship toward the end of their lives. Well, he has a cold relationship with everybody. I mean, <laughs> he really does. Washington is not a warm hail fellow. Well met uh, uh-huh. guy. And, uh, uh, William Lee, it is Washington who changes him from Billy. who was, as he was known throughout his youth, he becomes William. Uh, okay. As he matures, and and then Washington, I think he is the second person mentioned in Washington's will. Right, you mentioned that in the book that he he starts out with yeah. Martha, and he yeah. and his next person is William Lee. Yeah, I wanted to spend some time too on probably something that uh, school kids have read since Washington left office, and that's the farewell address. This this um, sentiment uh, that's also highlighted in the Hamilton musical, but how this marks. So much of what we think about Washington is his goodbye. What's the process he uses to craft this, um, to write this document and get it published and get it out to his uh, citizens? Well, the process that that we all have at some time tried to instill in our students, multiple drafts. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Start with the ideas, then do a draft. Then do it, let other people look at it, then do another draft. That was the mechanical process of it. Mm-hmm. He knew what he wanted to say, but Washington wasn't a stylist mm-hmm. and he knew that. So he did put down the ideas, did drafts, let other people look at it, primarily Hamilton. Madison wrote yeah. the first one. Yeah, he, he wrote the first one when he was going to retire at the end of his first term. Yes. And he was talked out of retiring. And it did have some of those ideas in it as well. He was pretty much estranged from Madison by the time he wrote the second one. Okay. Uh, but he did use some of the ideas that Madison had put mm-hmm. in the first one. But Hamilton was probably his primary 
not exactly ghostwriter because the ideas were all Washington's, mm-hmm. uh, but he was certainly a better stylist. And Washington was uh, his attitudes uh, had had changed a good deal and, and mm-hmm. under the course of the eight years he had, was president. He had grown to loathe the political uh, uh, disputes born of party and party yeah. allegiance. He found that to be, uh, he found parties that in, from the old 18th century concept of uh, the Patriot King, that parties were nests of corruption, pursuing self-interest rather than the common good. And that uh, this is part, this is part of what informs his, his uh, his his farewell uh, was to uh, to warn against the spirit of party, not in, of course, famously the entangling the the uh, unwise alliance, entangling alliance. I think Jefferson, Jefferson. but uh, yeah. uh, the the unwise reliance on European connections that could draw the country into arguments that are were none of its business. Those are the high points, but underlying it all was the fact that Washington felt the experiment was successful and could continue to be only under certain civic terms, which had to do with a selflessness, Mm -hmm. uh, a sense of awareness and knowledge, a sense of purpose, and a sense of unity. And I would throw in their virtue. Civic virtue, yes. Yeah. And that without those things, the experiment would falter and ultimately fail. Because as Washington was fond and, and, and embraced and fondly embraced the concept that power should be only carefully given to some people because some people are too fond of wielding it. And he, he, was, a, he was a breathing example of how that could be avoided but he wasn't so sure that everyone else was. You know, yeah. this was a surprise. When this thing came out, a lot of people were surprised he was quitting and going home. Uh-huh. And they weren't real happy about it. The yeah. people who were at each other's throats weren't real no, happy that's about true. it. Because he was the only thing keeping them from each other's throats. You know, that, mm-hmm. uh, Washington and uh, both Hamilton and Jefferson were quite disturbed that Washington was stepping down. And they were both out of the government by then. Mm-hmm. Jeannie, you mentioned uh, virtue and so forth. I think he uses the term religion and morality in the mm-hmm. farewell address. What what role does that play? And you hinted at some of that already. What role does that play in governing a republic? That the people must be uh, virtuous. Well, I think Maybe he thought that the, it was absolutely essential that self-interest should have no bearing on people's attitudes toward the government. In other Mm -hmm. words, their vote shouldn't be tied to their own self-interest. I think he was probably a little optimistic uh, in that regard, but he did believe that most of the people who had suffered through the revolution uh, were virtuous citizens Mm -hmm. and that they did want the best for the country. You you don't see a lot about religion tied to Washington, mm-hmm. uh, though by the end of his life, by the last decade, I think he was a deeply religious man. But like so many other things, that was private as far right. as he was concerned. 
uh, and part of the the dignity that was uh, behind most of his actions, and that he believed that religion uh, was something that was very important in creating a virtuous citizenry. Would you? What would you add? Yeah, I think so. In his uh, he had a, a, a concept of felicity, which was a, a balance of all things. Uh, moderation in all things. Uh, passionate ardor was usually wrong and almost always misguided. And as a result, he was a man who uh, who thought that religion was an anchor, that virtue was a, a trait to be cultivated, and that uh, honesty, the the, the the keeping of promises, especially when they were inconvenient, was the uh, was was the concept of a civic virtue that could rise above the petty passions of politics and party, yeah. and uh, and see to the uh, and 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 put aside differences to achieve a common end, which was for the good of all. You know, the sun rising in in over a country that was at was free, stable. Uh, prosperous and virtuous. Mm-hmm. That was Washington's dream. And that's why he, he, the key to felicity was the farewell address. Hmm. That was the cipher for yeah. how to, to decode the, the tangles of politics and passion. Mm-hmm. You write that Jefferson, when he read it, he, he thought this was a, um, a document or words that would, um, match the Declaration of Independence and its importance and its crafting, crafting of language and so forth and power of language. Yeah, uh, which is odd since I, I, maybe he suspected Hamilton had had a pretty good hand in it. Right. But it's odd that he would be so, uh, because Jefferson and Hamilton by then were, you know, really, really at odds. So they, they so yeah. that. But you never see yourself as being a political <clears throat> animal. Yes. And I don't think, Jefferson just saw himself as being correct in his mm-hmm, views, just sure. as Hamilton saw himself as being correct, that politics did not influence their behavior in their own minds. And mm-hmm. so I think to Jefferson, Washington was talking about those other people yeah. who were bringing politics <laughs> into government. John, I think one of the things that made uh, Washington gravitate to Hamilton was the lack of abstraction in Hamilton's thinking. He was extremely mm. practical. And his, uh, his notion of party was, uh, was unique. That it, and he kept telling the Federalists this, and they wouldn't listen to him. He said, it is not policy, it is principle. If you get the principle right, then the policy will fall into place automatically. And that sort of thing appealed to Washington. It was the surveyor in him. You know, if you can get the principle, everything else will then follow as 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 night does day. You know that right. that every, the world, the universe is ordered on those kind of principles, and then you know how to behave yeah. if you if you have them and they're unshakable. The line that uh, I was disappointed to learn was not in the farewell address, but was used in, by Washington at some other time. Was where Washington quotes a verse from Micah, I think, and says, when, when a man can live under his own vine and own fig tree, that's uh, uh, used in the Hamilton musical and put into the farewell address. 
And I was, <laughs> and I, when I reread the farewell addresses, where is that line about? <laughs> oh, it's not there, no, it's, it, but it was Washington from some other thing. So I think it was in a letter. Yes, it was. Yeah. yeah. Yes, that's right. He's writing to, uh, in fact, I think he's writing to a Jewish uh, community. Uh, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. In a way to, to tell them, Nope, no, you're fine with me as president. Uh, you know, exactly. You're welcome yes. in the United States. What would Washington think of the fact that we're approaching 250 years of independence? Would that stun him? Would that uh, pleasingly surprise him? What, what would, what do you think he would say? I think that he would not be surprised because he died so soon after he left the presidency that he mm -hmm. did not see a lot of the things that occurred, particularly in the, the early 19th century, where politics became so important to achieving. So I don't think, I think he thought that he had done everything necessary uh, to keep things on an even keel uh, as long as people followed his example. Uh, if he had lived longer, I think he might be surprised that it has lasted as long as it has. Yeah, I'm not sure he would have seen... The Civil War was, was such a uh, rending spectacle of, of butchery and and uh, and the kind of passions that he found so objectionable in public life was would have shaken him to the core. I think Washington would be pleased by the anniversary, but appalled by the circumstances surrounding it. I think he would find the government as it exists now unrecognizable, and I think mm -hmm. he would find the culture as grotesque. But you know, I mean, he wouldn't be unique in that in his among his fellows, sure. or among some Americans today. When do you think that that started to change? Was it almost immediately? Well, probably was. Uh, party parties begin to grow, and in fact, uh, he dies in 1799. And in 1800, there's a, just a fierce, ugly, brutal presidential election. That's yes. I mean, it's one of the ugliest. So um, between Jefferson and Adams. Um, yeah. yeah had, and the advent of Andrew Jackson is something I think he would have found troubling because Jackson was a cult of personality yeah. as much as he was a, a political movement and uh, uh, or exemplified a political movement. And I think he would have found uh, the the post-Civil War period to be troubling because of the intrusions of government in areas where he found them would, would have found them to be very disturbing. And the concept that government, which became quite current in the late 19th century with the progressive movement in, in the early 20th century, became something of a uniparty among both Republicans and Democrats right. as they progressives became uh, uh, so prominent in both Roosevelt and Wilson. You know, the remark that, that Roosevelt was a, uh, and Wilson were completely the same person, except that Roosevelt was a drill sergeant and Wilson was a professor. So <laughs> the, the notion, though, that that government can do anything better than the private person can, I yeah. think he would have found. Uh, I think he would have found it one of the great myths of the state, of a state, yeah. a domineering state. The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Bill of Rights Washington wouldn't have necessarily found objectionable, might have seen the need for it at that time. But, but I think 13th uh, would be okay. 14th, no. No. <laughs> I don't think he would have found 14th. And, okay. you know, I mean, in terms of constitutional uh, rectitude, the 14th is a pretty 
pretty dicey proposition. The, the thing was written in well, such a so way. so vague. It's to be so vague that it is almost, you know, it is almost unworkable right. as a constitutional precept. Yeah. It can mean well, anything to anyone. The Supreme Court certainly had its interpretive chops to, <laughs> sure to break on the 14th Amendment ever since, right? Well, one last question uh, about how the two of you as a married couple and co-authors edit one another. How does that work? Do you each write different Very chapters? And then... <laughs> <laughs> we, we test the bonds of matrimony on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> right. So do you do a chapter and uh, David does the other chapter? How, how do you... How do you divvy up no, the labor? No, we've done it and... differently. Every okay. book we've yeah. done differently. Uh, you mentioned okay. the clay book. Uh, yeah. And that one, we, we swore we would never do it like that again, even though it turned <laughs> out all right. I yeah. started at the beginning and David started at the end. And we tried to meet in the middle. Oh, uh, well. We found that we were we were not exactly meeting as we got <laughs> to the middle. And so we had to do a lot of work in the middle. Uh, uh-huh. But that was that was an experiment. Again, it turned out okay, uh, but it uh, it was something that we haven't done since. Uh, we we write different parts uh, of a book, and we have a uh, an outline, a chapter summary uh-huh. uh, for each chapter, uh, and so we take different parts of the book, and then we edit each other to make it sound like one person wrote it. Because we write, we have different writing styles. Mm-hmm. Uh, his is much better than mine. I'm much quicker than he is. So we uh, we we kind well, of those are come good. together. Yeah, uh, those are good like, trade-off traits. We, we, we do write different parts and then edit heavily but gently. Oh, very He's good. a very heavy editor. <laughs> <laughs> it somehow or other works. We we're able to get the work out, and it's uh, it's serviceable. <laughs> Certainly, more than serviceable. Well, you have a website, uh, DJ Heidler. That's D J H E I D L E R dot com. DJ Heidler dot com. Blog some and talk about your books and have some other things on there and let us know what you're working on in the future, I assume, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Excellent. Well, uh, Jeannie, David, it's very good to see you again and uh, chat with you on History 605. I appreciate you coming on the show. Well, thank you again, Ben. This has been very enjoyable. It has been. Thank you so much for having us. You're welcome. And again, the book is Washington Circle uh, and the friends and relationships that uh, made Washington the, the creation of the president, as the subtitle says. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting. And most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to fine podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.